we read earlier at the end of our reading, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, because they are God's, as in they belong to God. And Paul elsewhere said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And again to the Corinthian church, but in his second letter, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to God. When we gather together as the Lord's people, as a local church, there is much regarding the glory of God that ought to be our concern. Our ascribing glory to God and declaring his glory in prayer and in the singing of his praise and in the reading and preaching of his word. These basic and essential elements of our corporate worship of God should all be to his glory. But this evening, I want to think about bringing glory to God to a personal level for each one of us in the same way that Paul did when he spoke about glorifying God in your body. I want to consider how it is that each individual Christian believer can and should be seeking to live their life to the glory of God. Each of those three verses I just mentioned have their own particular context, of course, if you were to read them. And it's usually the case that to get the most out of a verse and to do it properly, you have to take it in the context in which that verse appears in the Bible. But there are some verses, and it's true of these, that there is much wider application that you can get from the truths that are taught there. And as long as those verses are taken within the general context of biblical truth and of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can apply them in a number of different ways. Glorify God in your body. Do all to the glory of God. Be well-pleasing to him. Those truths and principles have wide application. But they do require some sort of context, of course. They do require some framework within which they remain true. For example, do all to the glory of God does not mean do whatever you like to the glory of God. Because, of course, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there are many things which are not pleasing to God. Uh, there are things which God describes as being abominable and abhorrent to him, they are vigorously commanded against. And so it would be ridiculous, of course, for a Christian to engage in those things and to think that they could be done to and for God's glory. I hope that's obvious, but it just needs to be, needs to be stated so that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. All that is commanded of you and required of you, as you find it in the Bible, as someone who is a converted man or woman, someone who loves God and who is a follower of Christ, within that wide biblical context, do all to the glory of God. But what does that look like to live a life that glorifies God? 
But what we don't have time for, of course, is to try and come up with a big long list of every possible kind of situation and decision that you might ever face in your life and try to answer each of them in turn. But instead, what we can do is think of some principles that we can apply. And I want to bring three principles this evening, which I trust will help you in this important area of gospel living. How to live to glorify God. And I want to suggest that first of all, it requires in each of us personal persuasion. In John chapter 7, we find Jesus speaking, and this is what he says. My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Now, living your life to the glory of God is something that you must willfully engage in. It's a decided position that you occupy, which influences every area of your life. If anyone wills to do God's will, says Jesus. And of himself, Jesus says that he seeks. Now that's a proactive thing to do, to seek something. He seeks the glory of the one who sent him. It was something in which Jesus was actively, consciously engaged the glory of God the Father is something that Jesus constantly has in view, constantly has in mind, is the thing in which he is fully engaged and pressing towards. The glory of God. Now the counterposition to that is the one who speaks from himself and who is seeking his own glory. Jesus is presenting us with two different positions that you can occupy here. The first is, this is me, this is who I am, this is what I think, this is what I know, this is what I've done, this is what I've achieved, this is what others say about me, this is why I'm right and you're wrong, this is why you should be impressed by me. Have you ever heard people who talk that way? seeking their own glory. But the contrast to that for the Christian and for Jesus is this. This is God. This is who he is. This is what he thinks. See, it's constantly pointing away from yourself to God. This is what God has made known. This is what he has done. What he says I should do. What he has promised, he will do. This is why his way is right. That people will see him. That he may be glorified. Not me. Now, you have to decide as a Christian, 
which of those two positions you want to represent. Living your life to the glory of God begins with personal persuasion. That your will is to do God's will always and in everything. That within you and through you, God may be seen for who he is. And everything that ought to be ascribed to him is ascribed to him. All that ought to be surrendered and submitted to him in your life is surrendered and submitted to him. All of the thanks and praise and honour which is his and his alone by right is given to him. In the opening chapter of Romans, as Paul defines and describes sin and how it affects us, he says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul there tells us that sin is the willful dismissing of God from the heart and mind of a man or woman. It is a pushing of God to one side and living as if he's not there, even though you know he is. It is to have no regard for him. It is to live your life without any reference to him. It is to give no thanks to him. Having no concern if you do those things which displease him. And this, says Paul, is not glorifying God. And so to glorify God is to not dismiss him, but to consider him always and in all things. And for that consideration of God to be the uppermost thing in all your thoughts and decision-making, to consciously live in the reality that God is there and he's watching and he's listening, to have a regard for God and to refer to him and Humble yourself in obedience to him always and in all things and always with thanksgiving. And your regard for God and your reference to God is uppermost in everything. And so the Christian in that position can sing these words. Be thou my vision. O Lord of my heart, 
naught be all else to me save that thou art. You, my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, your presence, my light. Be thou my wisdom, be thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou, my great Father, and I, thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee, one. That is personal persuasion. Following on from that, secondly, is a requirement for personal purity. Now, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and from verses 12 to 18, we find some very clear instruction from the apostle there. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Flee sexual immorality, verse 18. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You are not your own. Now, in that passage, Paul is talking specifically about sexual immorality. But nevertheless, it serves as an extremely helpful example of how you ought to be thinking and dealing with any form of sin. Any sin is something impure, which clearly cannot be honouring to God in the life of a Christian. One of the struggles which many Christians have, and we touched on this the other week, is that you can find yourself saying to our first point, yes, I am persuaded to live a life which glorifies the Lord. Yet, just a few, hour, just a few hours later, you, you have this big downer on yourself because you've given in to some sin. It's a process of sanctification that we're all going through. And Paul provides us with some helpful pointers in 1 Corinthians 6 as to how we might practically go about dealing with this issue of personal purity. First of all, notice that Paul says that you'll find, your, you'll find in your Christian walk that you'll come across things which in themselves are not sinful, but they're not helpful. That's in verse 12. If you have this personal persuasion that we've been speaking of, one of the things that you'll do is pray for wisdom to be able to discern and exercise control over those things which may in themselves be permissible, but which are of no real benefit to you spiritually. And frankly, you could find far better things to do with your time, your talents and your money. It's often simply spiritual laziness when you continue in something that falls into this category of permissible but not helpful. And the danger is that they can become a habit, even an obsession. They gain power over you over time. And 
This can be true of all kinds of things. It could be a hobby, a leisure pursuit of some sort. It might be sport, whether you participate or just watch. Speaking of watching, maybe just watching TV, computer games, listening to music, YouTube. You'll come up with others. These things are not in themselves sinful, unlawful things. Indeed, there can be some benefit in spending some time in some of these things. But all of them are capable of reaching a level that is just not helpful and can even begin to dominate you. A young single pastor was struggling in his ministry and the church could tell. An older, wiser pastor counselled him and it turned out after an hour or so talking together, it turned out that this young pastor was actually addicted to watching TV and he was actually arranging his entire workload around his TV schedule. This was all in the days before you could record television programmes or turn to a a computer and and catch up later. And uh, the young pastor went home deeply convicted and he sat in his 10th floor flat and he sat and stared at his television and he came to a position of personal persuasion and he carried his TV to the window, opened it, checked that all was clear below and let his TV fall the ten floors to the ground. For him, something lawful had become a sin and the way to deal with sin Secondly, from this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, is to flee from your sin, verse 18, to be rid of it. And sometimes that means you need to remove the temptation as well. A church member was talking to her pastor and confessing that she was struggling with giving in to temptation. Every day, as she walked home from work, she passed a cake shop. And every day she just couldn't help herself, especially as at the end of the day, some of the cakes that were still unsold were on offer at half price. And she was taking pounds from her purse and putting them on her waist and she was becoming very, very miserable with the whole sorry state of things. And her pastor had five words of advice. And some of you already know what those five words were. He simply said this, walk home a different way. Flee your sin. Or even throw your TV out the window if that's what it takes, or preferably not from the 10th floor. Flee your sin. And thirdly, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul would remind you that as a Christian, you live in union with Christ. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one, as the hymn writer puts it. And when you sin, there is a sense in which you're dragging Christ into that sin with you. This is a lesson we thought about a few weeks back, that you're not on your own anymore and you are not your own anymore you are not a free agent to do as you wish 
You belong to the Lord. You are in him and he is in you. And Paul asks us to remember and to consider this great truth in this union that you have with Christ. How can you willfully engage yourself in sin whilst you're in union with the Lord? Think about the price paid by Christ to accomplish that, says Paul. Surely you'll only want to glorify God in all that you think and desire and do. Personal purity. Being rid of sin. What does James say in chapter 4 of his letter? Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. This will glorify God as your life becomes more and more purified in his sight. And then thirdly, you need public profession. Personal persuasion, personal purity, public profession. And I'm thinking equally about your lifestyle and conduct on this issue as well as your speech. You'll find that amongst the people who you spend most time with, family, colleagues at school or university or at work, it's, it's usually your lifestyle, your manner, your tone, your conduct that have a huge impact on people as well as the things that you say. A very obvious couple of verses which come to mind are those which we find early on in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. As Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavour, how shall it be seasoned? It'll be good for nothing and has to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul wrote to the Colossian church, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And to the Thessalonian church, he wrote this, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. You know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own body in sanctification and honour, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God. We urge you, brethren, 
that you increase more and more, aspiring to lead a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your own hands, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. What's being spoken of here is maintaining a faithful example of the life of a godly believer. In Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the express image of God the Father. And then Peter tells us that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now, when it comes to being the express image of God, you and I will never match up to Christ. But being his representative, being his imitator, being his ambassador, this is what God has called you to be. And in Christ and indwelt by his spirit, that is how he has called you to live. When Paul talks about the nature of the fruit that God's Spirit produces in the life of a Christian in Galatians chapter 5. These are the things that will honour and glorify God. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. As these uh, different facets of the fruit of the Spirit grow and develop in you. Your life will be glorifying to the Lord. Of course, such is the nature of this sinful world that even a life like that does not necessarily guarantee a good reception. Everything that Jesus did, he did with personal persuasion. He set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. And he did it in personal purity. In fact, of course, perfect purity. But nevertheless, his public profession still got him nailed to a cross. So we read in 1 Peter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. The issue at stake is pleasing and glorifying God, not whether, or not whether or not the world likes us. Being liked by the world is no indication at all that you are pleasing and glorifying God. And being disliked by the world 
could be because you are pleasing and glorifying God. That requires real personal persuasion, doesn't it? Ready to do that which is honouring to the Lord, even if it means the world despises you. Thankfully, by God's grace, often a Christian life, life lived well will be viewed on admirably in the sinful world. But not always, that's not guaranteed. But it does begin with personal persuasion. What does Christ mean to you, really? Where on the scale of your heart does living to God's glory really lie? Are you persuaded to give of yourself whatever it takes, no matter what the result is, in order to please and glorify the Lord? What decision have you come to in terms of your public profession? Are you one of those lights hiding under a basket? Have you been thus far? Or will you be the light set on a hill that cannot be hidden, will not be hidden? What's your personal persuasion right now for tomorrow morning? Will you determine to do only that which pleases your God and Saviour and which brings glory to him alone? For the cause of Christ your King, you give your life an offering till all the earth resounds with ceaseless praise to the Son. Let it be your life's refrain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow the Son. Christ you proclaim, the name above every name, for all creation, every nation, God's salvation through the Son.